Let's pray and uh, ask God to give us wisdom and insight as we open his word together. Lord God, as we open your holy word together this morning, it is with expectation that by your spirit you will speak to us. How thankful we are that at Christ's departure, as he promised, you sent the comforter, the Holy Spirit, and among many things that he does to serve and bless and lead for his name's sake, we, we are grateful that he instructs us and opens our hearts and illuminates our minds that we may understand this living word. We are in need of that again this morning, so we ask, dear God, that the Holy Spirit would attend the preaching of the word and not only give us insight that we may understand it, but shape our wills that we may submit to it, that we may believe everything that you have given us for life, for blessing, for goodness and godliness. Convict our hearts of our sinfulness and unbelief. Encourage our hearts where our faith is weak. And we ask that you would change us by this powerful word so that we might become everything that you have created us to be and more importantly, everything that Jesus shed his blood and redeemed us to be. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Bible speaks of sin against God and one another as debt. I don't know if you keep your bills in a file folder. Um, I used to use a, a filing system like this, and I just grabbed an example out of that, out of some things. But um, whether you use a, a, a paper filing system or an electronic filing system, I suspect you keep track of your bills, at least you should. Uh, it's helpful if you do. You're less surprised and less in trouble if you do that. But, you know, if you began to thumb through, say, the last year's worth of bills, you would, you'd have some memories attached with those things. And some of your bills probably come from a mortgage company. Maybe it's the lender that you went to to borrow something for your house, or maybe you bought a car and used credit for that, but every month they submit a bill to you because you're in debt to them. And you entered into an agreement that you would pay that debt. And as long as you keep your end of the agreement up, then they're really happy. Well, the Bible speaks of sin as creating a real debt. We're not going to Matthew 18, 22 to 35 this morning. I think we may actually go there next week, but that's a, that's a story that Jesus told to help illustrate the reality of the spiritual debt that our sin creates. And he tells the story in that particular portion of Scripture of a great king who decided one day he was going to settle all the accounts with his servants. And there's one servant who owes him a billion-dollar debt. Now, that's not the exact monetary amount that Jesus speaks of. He puts it in his particular day. But it was an outrageous sum. The king calls the servant in and says, time to pay up. And the, and the servant realizes he has no capacity to pay the king this debt. But he begs for mercy, and the king shows it to him. And he actually says, you know what? I freely forgive everything. It's a, it's a staggering moment. Who would not be excited to be relieved of a billion-dollar debt? Well, the servant, though, goes out and he, he kind of assesses his own situation and he remembers that there's a friend of his, another fellow servant, who owes him about three months' salary. Now, that's a significant amount. And I don't care if you're working for minimum wage or you can bill $300 an hour. But three months' salary, 
I mean, that's a significant debt for any one of us. Well, this servant who's just been forgiven the billion-dollar debt turns around and says to his buddy, pay it up. And his friend says, I can't do it, and says almost the identical thing to him that he had just said to the king. Show some mercy. Give, show me some pity. I'll pay you in time. And, and this servant, who's the billion-dollar guy, actually has the three-month salary guy thrown in prison until he can pay everything. Well, the king hears about it, and the king is outraged. And he calls the servant back into his presence, and he says, I forgave you everything, and yet you won't forgive your fellow servant three months' salary? And so he orders him to be cast into prison. And Jesus is making the point that sin creates a real debt, first with God and then with other people. And, and as we have opportunity, Lord willing, next week to come back to this, you'll see that Jesus is making the statement that we ought to be people who forgive one another everything because we've been forgiven everything from God. But I want you to just keep in mind this, this reality that sin creates a real debt. And some of you have had bills come in at such a rate where you realize, I don't have enough in my bank account to pay. And they continue to stack up. And just like this individual who's slumped over a stack of bills. And can you see it there right next to the eyeball? There's like a $5 bill. And, and a $5 bill is not going to go very far if, if all of these things represent mortgages and utility payments and whatever else is on the desk at that moment. And if you've ever been indebted, you you feel that weight and that responsibility. And if you've ever been at this particular point of saying, there's more to pay than I can pay, but you're still at this point, aren't you? Well, who's going to pay? It's overwhelming to think about. Who's going to pay? There are two passages which when we pair them together, create a powerful understanding of what I would call the gospel economy. Now, when we speak of the gospel, we mean the good news that Jesus Christ, we were singing of it earlier, the good news that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again, that sinful people like us might have our sins forgiven and have the gift of eternal life. Two passages that when you bring them together, tell us about this powerful gospel economy, if I can use that term, that deals with the real debt that our sins have created and the real debt that others' sins against us and ours against them create. The first is Ephesians 4.32. And the command is simple. God says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And it's that last phrase that we're going to spend time this morning really thinking through because if we don't first understand how God can forgive us for all of our sins, we're never really going to fully understand how we could actually forgive others, particularly when they're really, really bad, evil, wicked things that have transpired between us. And they have, haven't they? So here's the passage I want you to go to, Colossians 2. And if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, you'll find this passage of Scripture uh, on page 984. Colossians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. And so it's shortened, the title of this book has been shortened to Colossians, but actually it's the letter to the Colossians. And he's walking them through the particulars of the gospel. And when he comes to verses 13, 14, and 15, and you can see it printed on the screen, but I'd love for you to keep your Bible open there because I'm going I'm to have some other slides that roll through this, but I want you to keep the Word of God open in front of you. 
Paul reminds them of some realities that they were dealing with. And the first is this, verse 13. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Now, he's not talking about physical death or physical life at this point. He's actually talking about spiritual realities. And he says, God made you alive together with him, that is, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, let's summarize this passage because there are three particular categories I want you to see from this text that are essential to understanding what it means that God in Christ has forgiven you. And the first, the big heading is this. You and I, by our sin against God and against others, create an insurmountable debt. How do we know it's insurmountable? Well, first of all, because Paul writes in in Colossians 2.13 that it's a sin debt that results in spiritual death. You sin against God? A death sentence hangs over your head. Ultimately, that will culminate in an eternal judgment against sinners. It's called the second death, if you read through scriptures. And you don't actually cease to exist, but you experience the perpetual judgment and condemnation of God against you. It's a horrific condition for any soul to be in. Now look again at verse 13, because Paul says you were dead in trespasses. And that term trespass is a synonym for sin. It's used of sin in general in many different places. And, and you say, well, what is sin? Well, as the Bible defines it, in places like 1 John 3, verse 4, sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness with reference to God's law. 1 John 5, 17 tells us all wrongdoing is sin. From the smallest, what we would deem the most insignificant sin, to the really big, ugly things. All wrongdoing is sin. Paul wrote in another New Testament letter that the wages of sin is death. You sin, the paycheck that's coming is actually death. So there's sin debt resulting in spiritual debt. Here's the second truth. If you look at Colossians 2 once again, it's a, it's a, it's a debt that results in spiritual alienation. Now there's an interesting little phrase here in verse 13 that may seem peculiar to you. Dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, circumcision was initially a Jewish covenantal practice. It had really significant spiritual truth attached to it. We don't think that Paul is actually referring to some kind of of physical ceremony that separated Jews from Gentiles at this point. He's using this, though, to illustrate the fact that there's spiritual alienation. Just like from the Jewish vantage point, those who were uncircumcised were Gentiles. They're not part of national Israel, not part of those special covenants that God had given to Abraham's descendants. So Paul is saying to the Colossian saints, you were spiritually alienated. Sin separates us from God. Sin actually separates us one from another. It may be the very reason that some of you have been avoiding other people, whether they be family members or friends. They did you dirty. And you say to yourself this morning, I don't want to be around them. Well, that's what we're talking about. There's a personal alienation uh, because of sin. 
Now here's the third thing. It's a sin debt resulting in personal condemnation. Look again at the text. Paul goes on to say that you were in this condition, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, and there it is. But notice this, as he's describing all those trespasses and the effect, he he mentions in verse 14 the record of debt that stood against us. So here we are, the very terminology that I just uh, spoke of a, a few minutes ago. It's condemnation of a very personal nature because it's the record of your debt. You know, I was, I was thinking if, if I were to put together a, a file folder of, of all the sin that people have committed against me uh, through my lifetime, from family members to friends to former teachers, I was actually thinking about a really hard conversation I had years ago where I was accused of something that I, I was innocent of. But it happened in a very public way where when I was in high school, I think I was 15 years old, a teacher had heard that I had said something, and I had said it, but not the way he understood it. And so he decided that one particular morning, in front of about 200 other people, he was going to give me what for. And even as I was thinking about this week, I could feel the heat in my throat again. You know that sick feeling you have when you're like, I cannot believe this is happening, and what... I don't even know what to say, how to respond, and there are 200 people listening to this man just dress me down and, and put me in my place, and I don't deserve this. And I mean, it's just like all this turmoil, and even this week I was like, ah, I feel like I'm 15 again. And I was thinking, you know, in one sense, I, there's a bill in my file folder with that dude's name on it, and he's never come back to me to say, I was so wrong. Would you forgive me? I wish he would. But, I, but I'm sitting here, you know, ho- holding, this, holding this debt, as it were, going, hey, pay up. Isn't it funny? I'm 52 years old. All these years later, there's something about that, that wound of sin, that debt that's still fresh. So this file folder that, you know, I've got accumulated through the years of all the dirty stuff people have done to me, man, who's going to pay? Well, the problem is there are a lot of people who have file folders filled with my bills that I've created by my sin, right? You want to know the biggest problem? That's the file I've created with God from about the past 12 months. That's the bigger problem, isn't it? That's what Paul is talking about. There's a record of debt. And you know what? I don't want you to look in that. I don't want to look in that. I don't want God to look in that, but he knows everything. This is what I mean when I say it's a very, of a very personal nature. And when Paul uses this term, the record of debt, he, he is using terminology that appears in other Greek literature as well, from the first century as well as the Bible. It speaks of a, a note written by hand which makes one obligated to pay. It's as if God himself has recorded everything that you and I have ever done and he's put it in a file and he's going to collect the debt. There's a second thing that Paul says about this personal condemnation. It's hostile in nature. Look again at the text. The record of debt that stood against us. Stood against us. The, The English can't quite capture the terminology that 
Paul was using. Maybe some of you are reading from a New American Standard and you would see the word hostile to us or the New International Version stood against us and condemned us. These are the ways that, that translators are trying to capture the force of God's word here. You know, it's one thing to be a debtor as most of us are with a mortgage company or a lender, but you know, those bills may come in every month, but my banker's not hostile against me with this home uh, equity line that I have. Actually, it, it's, a, it's a mutually beneficial partnership. I, because I, I need the money and they have it, and they, because they want to loan their money at interest. So in a sense, we're, we're partners in this. They're not hostile against me, but, but this debt that I've created by my sin, there's a certain hostility in this box, as it were, a certain anger, if you will, that overflows from God's justice. We don't like to talk about this often, but do you know that God is angry every day with the wicked? Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13 tell us that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will whet his sword. That's a term for sharpening it. He's, he's putting a fine edge on it. He has bent and readied his bow he has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Those are graphic lines of, of a poem that describe God's anger and indignation over our sin. I don't want to live my life in the crosshairs of God Almighty. But that text says his bow is drawn. Ready to release an arrow of judgment, as it were, an arrow that we deserve to be pierced by because we are the ones who've sinned against him. It's hostile against us. And then, as if that's not bad enough, there is a legal nature to this. And Paul speaks of the record of debt that is hostile against us with its legal demands. You see, God doesn't just like get really angry about stuff. He gets angry because there's cause. He gets angry because he's holy and just in all his ways. His law is absolute and it does govern us. And that law that he has established has called for a certain penalty for certain sins. The question is, what does the law demand? Do you know there's no better way to answer that question than to look at the cross? The psalm I just read is poetry. So those are metaphors. There's no divine bow or divine sword, as it were, that, that God would bring against a, a sinner but the cross will give us a clear view of what the law demands. There are three aspects of that that I just want to draw your attention to this morning. And the first is that you can see the hostility of the law and its legal demands in Christ's physical suffering. The Romans prepared condemned criminals as they did Christ for crucifixion by scourging. The scourge was an instrument designed to inflict the greatest amount of pain upon the victim, yet not kill him. The infamous cat-of-nine-tails, as the whip was called, 
was constructed with shards of glass and bone woven into the nine leather bands. Small pieces of iron the size of marbles were often braided into the leather strips. It was designed not only to lacerate but to bruise deeply. The Romans scourged, scourged, bruised and bloodied the back and midsection of the criminals who were subject to it to the point where they would desire death. So intense was the pain. But that was just preparation for crucifixion. When a victim was crucified, iron spikes were pounded typically through the wrists. We say hands just by simple extension, but that spike driven through the wrist would not only inflict pain as it pierced, but it would be positioned to damage the nerves running through the wrist excruciating pain that resulted, the limited ability to hold the hands open. It seems more than any human being should bear. Feet were fastened together with legs bent uncomfortably and awkwardly to one side. And death on a cross came not typically from loss of blood, but from loss of the ability to breathe. For after hanging Upon a cross, hour upon hour, the condemned one could no longer raise himself in order to take a breath. Jesus actually gave up his life. One of his last words to the Father was, Into your hands I commend my spirit in the testimony as he breathed his last of his own will. What a horrific physical suffering! In the context of the gospel, though, the truth that God wants us to know is that he suffered in your place and mine. You and I are the ones who deserve to be crucified, not Jesus. Bruised, bloodied, suffering, and dying. Do you see him in your place? The hostility of the law is also seen in Christ's personal humiliation. The condemned criminal was fully and publicly exposed. In stripping him of his clothing, the intent was to shame him, expose him as a criminal. You think about that condition, that there's no place to hide. Not even a thread of cloth or strip of leather that could shield you from the gaze of all who stood seeing you as you were fully exposed. You know what, it's it's the human being's worst fear, isn't it? I don't want you to know me as I really am. And you probably don't want me to know you as you really are. That's why we do everything from Choosing our clothing carefully, taking time to do our hair, ladies, your makeup. You want to present yourself to the world in the best way you know how. Some of us fear that we might be known as we are. And this aspect of our Lord's dying was intended to expose him to the shame and even the guilt of crimes that he did not commit. 
The New Testament tells us that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I've said this frequently, and I'll say it again, and I hope that you would say it with me from your own heart, but do you want to know how bad a sinner Danny Brooks is? Look at the cross. That's my sin, and that's your sin, and that's God's just condemnation of our sin. You say, I'm not that bad. Yeah, you are, and so am I. If truth be told, we're far worse than we would even want to admit, let alone be known and exposed But the cross is also this remarkable moment where God says, you're more loved than you can ever fathom because I sent Jesus to take upon himself what was rightfully yours. Also, there's a third aspect that I want you to see about this condemnation and that is the hostility of the law is seen in Christ's public condemnation. In the lower right corner of the screen, you will see what uh, historians describe for us, and it even appears in the New Testament accounts of Christ's crucifixion. It's called a titleist. It's simply a placard that was placed over the head of the crucified person, listing out the crimes and offenses, or at least summarizing them. And for Jesus, written in three different languages, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, this was the crime that was placarded over his head. Some of you might be able to read enough of that to make it out. But Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, that was his crime. Well, as king, he had performed all kinds of blessings and miracles. He had taught truth in a way that no one had ever fathomed somebody could teach God's word. He had healed the sick. He had raised the dead. He had caused the blind to see, made lame people walk, fed 5,000 people generously so there were leftovers on one occasion, fed 4,000 on another occasion, and there were also leftovers. He had done nothing but give himself away, spend himself in service that would bring blessing and health and peace and life. And yet they killed him. The only thing they could put on his placard was far from a crime, the simple truth, the king of the Jews. I think about the placard that might need to be used for me, and I think that piece of wood isn't big enough. What I want you to see from the text, what I believe God wants us to see is that Jesus was condemned falsely, yes, but condemned to die for you and me. This is the hostility with its legal demands. This is what Paul is writing about to the Colossians. Now, why would he do that? Does he want to like put a, a downer on the day so everybody feels like really depressed and discouraged thinking about how ugly our sin is? No, he does this so that he can bring you to that place where you would say, there has to be hope. There has to be help. We read earlier in the service from Psalm 130, verses three and four. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer there is nobody could stand. We would all be crucified. But praise God, that's not where the text leaves us 
trying to answer that hard question. Verse 4 of Psalm 130 goes on, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It puts us in awe, doesn't it, that God would forgive us for our crimes and offenses. And so we come back to this burning question. Who will pay? Who's going to pay? You for your sins, me for my sins? That thought is horrific. And the answer that flows out of this gospel account is this. Jesus Christ pays. That's why some of us were singing with all our hearts. The blood of Jesus speaks for me. Singing of his life, singing of his death, singing of his resurrection, singing of the full and free forgiveness of sins. It puts us in awe that God would do this for us. The cross is precious because that is the place where sin with all of its condemnation, with all of its hostility, with all of its shame and all of its guilt was removed. You say, what? Yes, look at the text with me. That's exactly where Paul is going. And in the next glorious verse, he speaks very specifically of God's forgiveness. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. All. Not some. Not a partial forgiveness. Not some kind of of agreement that he puts us on probation and says, I forgive 50%, and if you do your part, then I'll forgive the rest of it one day, or let's just see how committed and obedient you are in your Christian life. No, it just says straight up, having forgiven all our trespasses. And the term forgiveness means to pardon, to clear a debt. So again, I'm staring at this box. And like I said, you know, this, this would be representative of just a little piece of my imperfect life. What what are we going to do with that? Well, first of all, God forgives all of that sin, cancels it, says, you're not indebted to me any longer. I I pulled up a a sample rap sheet, but I took out the name of the very famous person whose rap sheet this was, and I just said, you know, insert your name. And that's a fearful prospect that, that you and I would have our sins just written out and listed But here's what happens, and this is what this verse is is telling us. God looks at that record of debt, and he says, canceled for Christ's sake. Not canceled because Danny Brooks turned his life around and actually devoted himself to being a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ and and now serves the church with every waking moment, and he's such a a great husband and great father. And that's where my wife and kids would be like, wait, time out. (laughs) No, canceled for Christ's sake. I'm not afraid of my record of debt any longer. And you don't have to be either if you stand at the foot of the cross and say, that's what my sin did and deserves. Thank you, Jesus. There's a second thing, though, that the Bible tells us, another terminology that more fully explains what it means that we're forgiven by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. And the the term cancel actually means to blot out or to wipe off or to expunge. So, so it's not only that he stamped cancel on this thing, but if you could actually you know, pull the lid off of this box and, and start going through this folder by folder and saying, oh, Danny, remember there's the time that you did that, you'd be looking at blank sheets of paper. The sin's been blotted out. The record is expunged. You say, that's a really good deal, isn't it? How could God be so kind? Yeah, that, that's what we're all asking. But he is that kind. 
So the record of death, the comprehensive record of every sinful thought you've ever had, every sinful word you ever spoke, every sinful deed you ever did, all of it wiped from the record, the comprehensive record that was hostile towards you and hostile toward me, expunged. How could God do that? Well, he met the legal demands in Christ. We're back to the cross. Here's the third thing. And he removes the record of sin debt in Christ. Look at the next phrase in your Bibles. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's a vivid image, isn't it? That's, that takes us back to that placard over Christ's head, but it's as if he took that, that, that record of your, of your sin debt and, and nailed it to the cross, as he said here. But, but the whole point is this. He, he's doing that with a view that now it's removed. And I'll just slide this under here. The furthest, the furthest point I can reach right now from the platform. It's gone. And you know what? When God has applied the blood payment of Jesus Christ to all of your sins, canceled the real debt that you owe, then wiped the record clean, and then removed the record from the scene, he's never bringing it back. And neither should you. If I can pause for just a moment, some of you struggle with your past. You know, if you've come to Jesus and and acknowledged you are a sinner, worthy of condemnation, but in need of mercy, and when you ask God for mercy, you're just asking him to do a favor. You're, You're declaring bankruptcy, saying, I have no way to pay this. And he says, I know. That's why I sent Jesus to the cross. And I'm happy to cancel that debt. Expunge your record and then remove it. When, when God does that, you also need to do that by faith. Don't let your mind and heart go there. Sometimes those ugly memories from the past come up and you're like, I cannot believe I said that, did that, thought that, Wh- whatever it is. You know, those are the times to just, to by faith, and sometimes I even try to visualize this, just kneel at the cross again and say, God, I'm guilty. I'm struggling right now. I've got memories that, that I'm, they're just gonna control me, but I need to see Jesus as my not only my Lord and my Savior, but the sacrifice for my sins. I need to believe your word that says, I have forgiven all your trespasses. I've canceled the record of death that stood against you. Hostile as it was, I've taken it out of the way. Lord, thank you. And you, and you turn that struggling moment into a moment of gratitude and praise, just saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You believe it and you live in it. Because all of that is what God does. And because God has removed the debt, all the consequences go with it, all of it. You're free. Some of you have never lived in that freedom. You, you carry, it, it's like every day. You, you've got not just one box, but boxes and boxes. And, and, and it's so heavy to carry this. And you try to shift it around and hold it in different ways. You carry it on your, your shoulder and then times you set it down, but you just pick it up and day after day, walking, living life. Say, I'm so bad. I've messed up so much. And God's saying, put it down. Let me forgive. Let me cancel. Let me remove it. Now, That's the groundwork for the last seven minutes. Because remember the verse we looked at at the very outset? 
God says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Some of you are close enough to read that, aren't you? (laughs) See, this is the bill I'm going to submit to some of you because you've offended me. Did you know that? I could just start in my own household. Let me tell you about the people I live with. (laughs) For those of you in the back who can't quite see it, the the bill at the top says, Danny Brooks, Wounded Soul, Inc. Because that's me. I'm the wounded soul. Everybody I live with sins against me. I mean, present tense. Even my dear wife, who's been a Christian for how many years? You ought to know better. What do I do with her offenses against me? Better yet, what does she do with my offenses against her? It's the problem when two sinners say I do, and that's every marriage on planet Earth ever. You better have a way to handle that sin or else you're going to accrue so much debt over those 5, 10, 50, 60 years of marriage that you will be bankrupt bankrupt by your bitterness bankrupt by your your anger and frustration toward one another bankrupt by the poor communication and all the junk that comes with that sin so the question is what do i do with those bills well practically speaking if if kristen and i are living in fellowship and this is true not just for couples but this is true for any two human beings but let's turn this around and let's say she's actually got a legitimate bill to submit to me and it's her wounded heart that needs to be dealt with and let's say I come to her and I say, Kristen, will you forgive me for what I said? I know it was hurtful to you and it was sinful before God. I've asked God to forgive me for those words and I'm asking you to forgive me. Now there are two parts of this that are really important for us and this is the economy of God's grace, okay? I'm, I'm, I want you to just take it to this very practical level. First of all, if I can stand before her and say, I've asked God to forgive me, that means I've owned the biggest piece of the sin because the greatest offense is always God. So that needs to be true. And if I've done that, then based on the text, just like we looked at earlier in Colossians 2, God himself has canceled or has stamped his cancellation on this bill, right? But I'm actually looking for a second stamp, so to speak. And so that's where I come to her and I'm saying, I'm asking you to forgive me. And I'm using God's terminology because God never says in his word, hey, apologize to me for your sins. I'm splitting a little bit of a hair right now, but I think this is really important, especially for followers of Jesus, because we don't apologize to God for our sins. We repent and say, will you forgive me? And when we do, he cleanses us. When we do, just some of the terms that we read earlier, he removes that sin debt from us, okay? Because that's what we're working for. So now I've come to Kristen. I'm acknowledging that I spoke sinful words that were, were an offense to God. They were an offense to her. And I'm holding that debt, that bill that she rightfully sends me, as it were. And I'm declaring my bankruptcy, saying, I'm asking for a favor. I have no way to pay for this. But she as a follower of Jesus, knows that in her bank account, she's operating not with her own cash, not with her own righteousness. She's operating with God's cash deposited there 
because of Jesus Christ. And if she says gladly, I forgive you for Christ's sake, she just pulled out the same stamp. It's a smaller version, but it's the same stamp as it were. And she says, for Christ's sake, I forgive you. And some of you have experienced that before, and it's an awesome moment. Others of you say, I've never experienced that. Oh, I hope you will soon. Because now we're restored, both humbled by the reality of our sin. I, because I've sinned against God and her, she also reminded that, uh, as she forgives me, that she's been forgiven a box full question that comes up, can I or must I forgive someone who doesn't ask for my forgiveness? This would probably merit a whole other message, but really quickly, lest we get into some kind of sentimental uh, and and even confusing uh, experience or practice of forgiveness, you know, as I look through scriptures, I don't see God forgiving people who don't come to him and own their sin and acknowledge it before him and ask for his mercy, but I also don't see that we're going to be held hostage by another person's sin all our days. So let's say that, that now um, I come to Kristen and I say, your words were sinful and they really hurt me. And, and this, she has never done this, okay? So that's part of the reason I can use this as an illustration. But this is real life uh, for so many of us. You go to somebody else or what have you and you say something like that and, and then they actually ignore the sin. And they may say something like, too bad for you. And, and, and you're left with the bill they created by their sin. You're going, what, am I losing my mind? No, th- those were hurtful, sinful words. Or they say something like this, it's no big deal. They want to minimize it. And you're saying, it's a huge deal. My heart has been wounded by those words, and they're, they're just blowing it off. Or something even worse, they deny it. I never said that. And you're like, and you really wish you had a recording of that moment. Because you know what you heard with your ears and you know the pain it has brought your soul. So whether they ignore it, minimize it, or deny it, you're still holding a bill, a real debt that their sin created. You say, what do I do with this? What I really want to do by faith at this moment is is say, canceled for Christ's sake. And all they have to do is say, I was so wrong, will you forgive me? Yeah, I gladly forgive you. But you're not going to have that chance because they ignore it, minimize it, or deny it. What do you do with that? Well, as a follower of Jesus, remember, you're operating in his economy of forgiveness and and you turn around and you actually turn it over to him because he is the ultimate debt collector. And you say, "What, what what do you mean? Well, let me give you one sample of this. Romans 12, 18 through 21 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So that's the attempt. Your words hurt me and you're giving the opportunity to uh, seek forgiveness, but they don't. Well, what do you do? Well, now verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's powerful, isn't it? So, So I pull out my little, you know, nothing folder compared to my big box of, of offenses against God, and I say, well, this, you know, this, this person did this. I'm left holding a bill, and God says, give it to me. I'll collect. And so I, I, I pass it over to him, and I go on and live my life. Low-grade sorrow that this person and I haven't been able to work it out, yeah, but trusting God, saying, you know what? I don't have to collect it. I, I'm not the great judge of the universe. I, vengeance is his. 
He will repay. Paul goes on in verse 20 to say, to the contrary, that is to the contrary of taking vengeance yourself, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the larger cultural rhetoric, but there's very little of this kind of forgiveness and mercy and grace and compassion. We're really good at collecting. Pay what you owe. Demanding justice. What a difference it would make if if we lived in a society that really understood the fact that God is the great and ultimate bill collector. Justice will be served either at the cross through the blood of Christ or in hell. What if, here's a third scenario, what do I do if someone won't forgive me? You humble yourself, you go to them. So you say something like this, will you forgive me for what I said? I know it was hurtful to you and sinful before God. I've asked God to forgive me for those words and I'm asking you to forgive me. So again, you expect something different, but they say, I will never forgive you for what you said. And that's, that's devastating, isn't it? What, what hope and consolation do you have? Well, again, thinking in terms of, of God's economy, you, you carry your sadness to Christ, but you rest in God's forgiveness of your sins. Because if that first statement is true, that you've actually asked God to forgive, forgive you, you've got the most important stamp on the debt that you created. It's painful, but you can trust God to deal with them even though you would, you would love nothing more than to hear them say, will you forgive me? What I love about the Lord's economy of forgiveness is that no matter whether you are the offending party or the offended one, there's real stuff to do and real things to enjoy. God is not simply asking you and me to follow his example. He's actually bringing us into his economy of forgiveness and grace and saying, join me, participate with me. First, he wants you to experience the power of his forgiveness over all your sins. He wants you to know the relief of knowing that all of your sins and all the guilt and shame that goes along with it is canceled and removed from your record. He wants you to live as a free person. And then he wants to position you to do the same thing for others. Are you familiar with the story of Botham Jean, an innocent man who was killed in his own apartment when an off-duty police officer mistook him, as she said, for an intruder in her own apartment? Geiger's apartment was on the third floor, directly below Jean's apartment on the fourth, in an apartment building with mostly identical floor plans on each level. Geiger testified that she thought the apartment was her own and that she found the door slightly ajar, and she testified that she thought Jean was an intruder in the darkened living room of her apartment when, in fact, Jean was killed in his own apartment. And she claimed she feared Jean would kill her, but he was unarmed. It's a tragic story on so many levels. It went to court not too many months ago, and the jury found Amber guilty of murder, and the judge sentenced her to 10 years of prison. But at the sentencing, Botham Jean's brother, Brant, took the stand to give a victim's impact statement. And this is the moment family members of victims wait 
uh, wait for to vent all their anger and frustration uh, and sorrow and to let the perpetrator have just a small taste of what they've done to the family. But Tim's going to queue up a, a video clip, and if you've not seen this, you need to watch carefully, but watch in the context of what we've just studied because these are the very truths that were undergirding uh, Botham's uh, brother, Brant, as he speaks these things. So go play this and let's listen. I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I just, I hope you go to God with all what, all the guilt, all the thing, the bad things you may have done in the past. Each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know. I can speak for myself. I. I forgive you, and I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person and I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. But watch this and watch her response. powerful moment, isn't it? And I'm telling you that I, I would love to talk to her, but I suspect that those tears and sobs that are coming from her right now are not only some tears of sorrow, but there's probably tears of, of relief 
just being in awe that the brother of the man she murdered would stand there and say, I forgive you, I love you, now let me embrace you. Friends, I haven't haven't seen as powerful a, a picture of the love of God like that in a long time, but that's exactly, first of all, get this straight, that's exactly how God would embrace you to his heart if you would say, I'm guilty. Me with all of my sin. All that horrific stuff that really means I should be hung on a cross and crucified. But can you hear God, even through this text, saying, I forgive you? Can you picture God himself embracing you, receiving you? In a follow-up interview, as you know, most of us, from the major news outlets to just ordinary people like us, just stood amazed, having heard and watched Brandt uh, extend that mercy to Amber. But he said in a follow-up interview, I know that every time I ask God for forgiveness, he forgives me. So who am I to not forgive someone who asks? But she murdered your brother. And his answer is, who am I to not forgive? This is the power of the cross. First of all, this morning, are you rightly related to God? Has there ever been a time that you've said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I owe you a debt I could never pay. Have mercy on me. Forgive me for my sins. Receive me to yourself for Christ's sake. Have you ever done that before? If you haven't, do it right now. Just just quietly from your heart, just call upon him. Second question. Are there people right now that, that you're unwilling to forgive? And by faith, can you just step it to the foot of the cross and looking upon all that Jesus did for you? Could you give that forgiveness? Could you just release it? Could you humble yourself and go to a person and say, I've wronged you, will you forgive me? Oh, beloved, what, what would happen in our homes if we began to forgive in this way? What would happen in the neighborhood? What would happen in your school? What would happen in this nation if rather than just pounding one another, demanding justice, pay me what you owe, pay up now, you did me dirty, you should rot in jail forever, you should rot in hell forever. I mean, that's the spirit of our age. But what would happen if a if hundred people like us in this room just said, by God's grace, first of all, I, I'm gonna rest and rejoice in the forgiveness that God offers me, and then I'm gonna be a minister of that same forgiveness to others. Oh, it would be transformational. And that's what God intends. Let's bow for prayer. Lord God, how we thank you for the gospel. Thank you that through the life of Brant Jean, at tremendous cost to him personally, the death of his, his brother, we've witnessed the power of the cross and the gospel at work where he is showing us what it means, first of all, to receive and enjoy the forgiveness of God 
And then to extend that same forgiveness to another. I pray for those who've never received your forgiveness, never even asked for it, never acknowledged that they were deserving of condemnation. Oh, would you give them grace at this very moment to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And for some here who hold on to a pile of debt, they really, they've been sinned against grievously. But they're trying to collect in their own power and it's just not theirs to collect. Give them grace to forgive where they can. Give them grace to release that debt into your care knowing you are the one who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. I'm asking that you would bring great peace through hearts and households through communities, workplaces, schools, and even our nation. That you would teach us to forgive one another as you have forgiven us.